Let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Dear Lord, again, I thank you for all that you do. Lord, I thank you for bringing us here together. I thank you that Connie is here with us. And Lord, at this moment, I ask now that you, Lord, that you remove me from this and that my words are your words instead. And I ask that everyone takes leaves here with a better understanding of you and your love. Amen. He was in trouble, or so it seemed. He had said something that could, in anyone else's eyes, come back later to bite him. See, he had told his children that if they didn't obey him, and if they didn't eat all their food on their plate, that he would have to cancel the trip to Disneyland or Disney World. And the meal started out great. His kids sat down, he had a son and a daughter, they sat down and they began eating, and they were even eating their veggies. And he was thinking, all right, this is turning out pretty good. And then it came time to eat the carrots. And first his daughter kind of turned up her nose and, I don't want to eat these. And she kind of started playing with them and then pushing them aside. And then her son, or his son, he kind of caught on and he started pushing away his carrots. And neither one of them would eat their carrots. So now it seemed like he was stuck. I mean, what was he supposed to do now? He had clearly said, you guys need to eat all your food or else I'm going to have to cancel this trip. And they weren't eating their carrots. Well, he really wanted to go. I mean, it kind of doesn't seem right to just cancel a whole trip because your kids aren't eating their carrots, right? But at the same time, he didn't want to go back on his word because he didn't want his kids to think he was a liar and that he didn't mean what he said. So... It was kind of a, you know, he was, he was stuck. The only way to, to really explain it. And I suppose most in his case might have kicked themselves for saying that in the first place. And I mean, as parents, anyone who has ever said, do this or else this, sometimes at the end when your kids still won't listen, you're sitting there going, why did I say that? Because now I have to carry through with it, or, you know, I've got to think of some other way to get around this. But he didn't. He didn't recant, and he didn't cancel the trip instantly. See, before he had even told the kids, you got to eat everything or else I'm canceling the trip, he had, a, he had a plan, a backup plan, in case things didn't go right. Because as anyone with kids knows, there's times where, well, let's just say, kids don't listen, right? It happens. We were all kids once. We all know. And so here he was. Well, I mean, of course, as soon as the kids had realized what was happening, they began to wail, no, and they realized they had to go to their rooms for the time being. And they screamed, no, don't do this, Daddy, don't do this. And they went down the hall, and they went in their rooms. And they were sad. I mean, what about dessert? What about the rest of the food on our plate? I'm still a little hungry. Company was supposed to come over later. Now we can't hang out with them. Why was this happening? Why was Dad being so mean? That's what it boiled down to, right? Why was he being so mean? After all, it was just a few lousy carrots. Meanwhile, Dad sat in the living room. He could hear them. He could hear the whimpering, and his heart kind of broke. I mean, why can't kids just listen? Well, for Adam and Eve, the problem was clear. They had goofed. God had said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And what had they done? They'd eaten from it. And now it seemed that God was stuck. I mean, 
He hadn't struck them dead yet. Why? And I'm sure the rest of the angels watched as well. God had clearly said, don't do this. They've done it. If you do this, this is going to happen. And that had happened. What, what was God to do now? They were still alive. So God, of course, he kicked them out of the garden. He banned them from eating from the tree of life. He banned them from ever entering the garden again. And he gave them sentences, so to speak. Painful childbirth. When you till the ground, you're going to sweat. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Life's going to get difficult. But they weren't dead yet. Was God not going to keep his word this time? And so there appeared to be a problem. God had said one thing. How was he to remain righteous still if he didn't kill them off? Or at least at the end of their life, just they'd die and that'd be the end of it. What was he to do? And of course, righteous. What does that mean? God is righteous. We hear that term all the time. Well, it means good. It means he's morally right. He's upstanding. In other words, when he says something, he means it. So whenever I use the word righteous from here on out, that's what I mean. God is good. God is upstanding. He means what he says. So how was God to maintain being righteous and yet loving and merciful in this case? I mean, it's a really tricky situation. And it was truly a mess, or so it seemed. So the Apostle Paul in his letter, in, he's writing a letter to Rome, and he begins to outline this problem. He sees the same problem. How is God supposed to remain righteous and yet follow through with what he said he would do? How is God supposed to be loving and yet follow through? What is going to happen? And so he couldn't really say, okay, okay, I've got it. You guys go back in the garden, and this time don't eat from that tree. You understand? Or I mean it, this time you will die. Don't do it. And I mean, as parents, how many times have we done that? You know, your kid does something and you're like, okay, just don't do it again, please. Just don't. And of course, you know, sometimes, oftentimes they'll do it again. <laughs> but God couldn't in this situation. The situation is different. God had said, don't do it or this is going to happen. And they've done it. And now if God is to maintain his status as righteous, he can't go back on his word. So if you turn with me to Romans, and we're going to be in Romans a lot today. Romans 3. Paul begins to outline how big this problem really is. Romans 3. I'm going to start at the end of verse 22 and read verse 23. He says, For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how big is this problem? It doesn't just involve Adam and Eve anymore. How big is this problem? It involves everybody. Everybody. So it doesn't matter if you consider yourself to be a good person. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself to be a bad person. This, this sin problem, it encapsulates everybody. Everybody. And of course, Paul is writing to a mix, mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying... This problem affects you who are Jewish. This problem affects you who are Gentiles. It affects each and every one of us. We're all sinners. So this problem is big. All have goofed. But Paul says, wait. I'm not done yet. There's more. There's more. It's not completely hopeless. See, before God even issued those words, don't eat from this tree or you're going to die, he had a backup plan. 
he had a plan, one where he could maintain his standing as perfectly righteous and yet offer something more to humanity. And so humanity isn't killed off right away because there's a plan. And those who die from that point on after Adam and Eve, they're not going to die and then that's just, that's it. Because God has a plan. And so Romans 3.24 says, So all have sinned. All are in this, this problem. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? That is in Jesus Christ. So a compromise could be reached, so to speak. There was actually a glimmer of hope. And I want to continue reading in verse 25. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. As a what? As a propitiation. It's an interesting word. And a lot of times, actually, I promised myself when I was speaking up front that I would never use words like propitiation and righteousness and basically the words I'm using today. Because a lot of times, you tend to lose people fast when you start using those big words. Because, you know, who wants to be using a dictionary in their head constantly saying, okay, wait, 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 that word means this, and this word means that, and this links with this. But this word is so cool, I have to use it. Propitiation. See, when Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, he's writing to a group who understood Greek culture. And so as they see this word, propitiation, they know what it means to them. Because in their culture, uh, before they had converted to Christianity, they believed that in many gods, and they believed that those gods were angry almost all the time. So you had to offer a propitiation constantly to appease the gods. It's basically a fancy word for a sacrifice. And so if there wasn't enough rain, you'd offer a propitiation. If there was too much rain, you'd offer a propitiation. If you wanted a child, you'd offer a propitiation. If you wanted money, you'd offer a propitiation. If you were having bad luck, so to speak, you would offer a propitiation. And so Paul is saying, using this word in this context, and these people would read it and go, I know what that means, but wait. But wait. God isn't angry with humanity. He's not the one requiring a propitiation from us. What does it say here? Who offered it? It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation for us. So something is different here. Things have been turned on their head. God himself has put forward the propitiation. God himself has paid that price that was ours to pay. He is paying our debt, so to speak. He's offering, and the word is also translated many times as an atoning sacrifice. He's putting that up, not us. So to make this make a little bit better sense, let's jump back to the story with the kids. So the kids are now in their room. They didn't eat their carrots. They're in their room. They're upset. But there was another person. There was an older brother. And see, the older brother and the father had agreed that if things didn't work out, that he would take the punishment that they deserved. And so the dad agreed, okay, you can do that. And they talked about what it would look like, how, how, it, was going to be, how it was going to be conducted, what, it, what needed to happen in order for this to happen, so that the kids could still go to Disney World in the end if they wanted to. But see, during this time, the kids are in the room, during this time, something begins to happen. They become furious. 
they began ripping down the pictures on the wall. I had a little brother once who went to his room and he just began peeling wallpaper off his, off his wall. So mom decided that wouldn't work anymore. But anyways, they began ripping the pictures off the wall. They began tearing apart clothing. They began destroying their, to- their toys. And I mean, to anybody, any of us listening, we're like, okay, that's it. Those kids, like, that trip is canceled at this point. It's canceled. These, these guys don't deserve a second chance. But it was at this point, when the kids are doing all this crazy stuff, that the older brother takes their punishment. It's at that point. And that's what Jesus did for us as our propitiation, as our sacrifice. In Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says, But God proves his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it was that point where humanity wasn't perfect. It wasn't while they were trying to be perfect. It was while they were in complete rebellion against God that Jesus came and he offered himself up for us. That's crazy. That's love. And so jumping back to Romans 3, verse 25, God has put forward a plan effective through who? Through Christ. See, going back to Adam and Eve in the garden, sin brings death, and God knew it. That's why he said, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. It wasn't because God was out to kill humans. It wasn't because he wanted to put the harshest penalty he could on something. It was because sin in and of itself, living in opposition to God, actually brings death. That's just the natural consequence of sin. And all we have to do is look around at the world that we live in to see how that looks. We, we read the news. We see all the sad stuff happening. We see people who, who go out and they hurt other people. And we're sitting there going, why? Why are they doing that? Because that's what sin is. It's sick. And God knew it. And so he says, if you do this, you're going to die. Because this is the natural consequence of what happens when we sin. So please don't do it. God knew. Please don't do it. And so he offers up Christ for us to give us hope. And Romans 3 verse 26 says something interesting. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous. So not only is Christ as a propitiation for us or as a sacrifice for us offering us hope, but through that God is still righteous because our debt has been paid. That's crazy. God is still righteous, even after all that. And I love what it says back in, turn back to uh, verse 24. They are now justified by his grace as a what? As a gift. And of course, how is it effective? It's effective through faith. So if I was standing here and I was holding out something to you, it was a gift, and I'm holding it out to you, What do I expect you to do in return? Do I expect you to work for that gift? Do I expect you to crawl on your knees to the front to accept that gift? Do I expect you to, you know, do some daring act or go out and mow my grass or something? No, I expect you to reach out and take it. That's what I expect you to do when I offer you a gift. And that's what Christ has done for us. He's held it out. God's saying, here's a gift. I've paid it all. You just have to take it. 
Right now, I want to jump back to those kids for a second. So the older brother has taken their punishment. And now there's something that they have to do. They can go on this trip if they want to, but all they have to do is accept it. And the older brother, he looks, or the younger brother, he looks and he says, you know what, forget this, dad. You're not, you, you weren't fair. I want nothing to do with you. And he doesn't take it. It's there, the dad's offering. And he says, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with that gift. Forget it. But the sister looks and she says, wow, I don't deserve this gift. I would gladly accept it because of the price that was paid for it. And for many of us, I mean, how many of us deserve what Christ did for us? And yet God is saying, please just accept it. Through faith, just accept it. All right. There's one more question, though, that we have to ask. And because we're humans, we like to know how things tie in with us. All right, so if God is righteous or he isn't righteous, what does that seriously mean to me? Why does it matter? Why does it matter personally to me whether or not God was righteous or not? All right, so I know that Christ offered himself up as our propitiation. I know that God is righteous still as a result of that. I know that this is a free gift, but ultimately going back to the God's righteousness, what does that matter for me personally? It's this. Again, Romans 3.26. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in him. In other words, God proves, has proven that he is righteous still. And that allows him to justify us through that righteousness. Another way of saying it is this, if God is not righteous, then we are truly without hope. So in other words, if God had been proven that he could not keep his word, that he was no longer good and just, then we would truly be without hope. That would have been it. Why? Because as it says in Isaiah 64 verse 6, our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. So I can't do anything on my own. I'm stuck here. I'm stuck in this sin problem. Because it, 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 it involves me, it involves everyone. But, because God is righteous, he can justify us. And as Paul says in Romans 5.19, he says, For just as by one man's disobedience, being Adam, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, being Christ, the many will be made righteous. So, we're made righteous by Christ's gift because God is righteous still. So we accept this free gift offered by a God who is still righteous because he offers us a propitiation by way of the cross and the resurrection. And this is carried forward by Jesus who took what we deserve and in turn he offers us a free gift of salvation in him. And all we have to do is accept it. And this is all possible because God is righteous by way of the cross. It's all a very much interconnected circle. That right there is love to the extreme. That God would offer the gift of Jesus, not only to maintain his righteousness, but because he had to in order to cover us with that righteousness so we can have free access to him once more. And we don't have to do anything for that. We just accept it through faith and we let him change us. That's love. 
The story is told of Martin Luther as he crawled up those uh, 25 steps, and I can't remember the name of them. And as he's crawling up them on his knees, he begins, that the verse goes around and around in his head, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. And suddenly he realizes, I don't have to work to gain God's favor. I don't have to crawl up these stairs on my knees to gain God's favor. Because Jesus already did that for me. He already paid that price. That's love. And I have to ask myself this. How, would I be willing to do that for someone else? Would I be willing to offer myself up for someone else that didn't like me? Someone who was openly rebelling against me. Would I go to all that trouble for someone else? God's love is something that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. And Paul sums it up well. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Looking at verses 18 and 19. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Paul says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, we can't even begin to understand how much God loves us. And Paul is saying, I pray that you can begin to grasp a little bit of how much God cares for you. And that's why we study and we learn it. And that's why we see that Christ put forward that propitiation, that God is righteous still, because in studying it, we begin to see just a little bit more of how much God really does love us and what he's willing to do and the lengths he's willing to go to say, I love you and offer you that gift. Because we serve a God who protected his standing as righteous, not for himself, but for you and me. We serve a God who isn't angry with us, but offered himself up as a sacrifice or a propitiation for us because he loves us. We serve a God who did all this while we weren't perfect, knowing that we were sinners because he loves us. And all he asks is that we reach out and we accept in faith and let him work with us from there. John 3.16, anyone that knows it, go ahead and say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's love from a God who, despite the sin problem, is righteous still. Amen.